Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Um, I am, as Scott said, my name is Nick and I work for Open Doors and I like to give a little bit of context um, as to how old I am because often when I speak, I'll mention my kids and I look at people and they look back at me like, you're too young to have kids. And when I say that I have four kids, people are like even more shocked, like, how old were you when you had your first kid? Um, but I am 31 and we have four kids. We, we, our, our eldest daughter, uh, her name's Lenny and she's just turned seven. And then our only boy is Brooks and he just turned five. And then uh, at the start of 2020, we had surprise twins. Uh, so we went from two to four, doubled in a day. And yeah, we haven't had much sleep since. And so the twins are nearly two. Uh, Banksy and Sunny are their names. They're not identical. Um, and I should have brought a photo because that would have been nice to show everyone. Um, but yeah, I have been working for Open Doors for probably just over a year. And so I met Scott early on. And um, I don't know if how many of you are familiar with Open Doors, but most people that I speak to uh, have some level of knowledge of Open Doors or have heard about Brother Andrew or maybe some of the things um, that he has done. But for those that don't or have any idea of the ministry of Open Doors, uh, we, we serve the persecuted church uh, around the world. And it started in 1955 uh, where Brother Andrew, um, who was living in the Netherlands, decided to smuggle Bibles into Eastern Europe. Um, and so he put Bibles in his VW Beetle. I once said, the back of a VW Beetle and someone came up to me after the service to let me know that VW Beetles back then did not have a boot at the back, but it was actually at the front. And so I'm not going to say at the back, um, but there were Bibles in the car and he would cross the borders into Eastern Europe and God did many miracles, uh, miracles like he was stopped and, you know, asked to kind of, they searched the car and Bibles that were there were not there to the eyes of those checking and let him through, and then the Bibles were there when he got to the other side. But a lot, of, a lot of amazing stories. But he came back from delivering those Bibles and didn't really have much intention to keep on doing it, but people had heard about it and started contacting him, um, Bible Society, and other people saying, hey, we've got the next lot of Bibles for you to smuggle over the border. And so he kept on doing it. Um, and you can, you can look at some of his books and things like that with these incredible stories, but you know, all those years later, we now work in 70 countries and have people on the ground and work with local churches supporting Christians that are persecuted for their faith. And, um, you know, often we think of persecution, um, you know, in countries like Afghanistan and Nigeria and things like that as, as simply violent persecution. But persecution comes in so many different ways. So many different ways. Obviously, violent persecution is a big part of it. But also in, uh, in, in little things, what we've seen over the last couple of years, if, if in countries there, there were government, whether it be stimulus packages or food packages, you know, due to the pandemic, Christians would not make it on those lists. They would not receive those sorts of benefits. And so that's where Open Doors and other organisations come in to really help and support um, other countries, they'll be persecuted um, by not allowed to start businesses or even in some, they're not allowed to immigrate into other countries because according, 
they've had papers removed and they don't exist according to um, governments and things like that. And so we work in 70 countries, like I said. Every year we release uh, what's called a world watch list, which is the top 50 most dangerous countries to be a Christian in. And for the last 20 years, uh, North Korea has sat atop that list at number one as the most dangerous place to be a Christian. We estimate uh, that there are just over 300,000 Christians living in North Korea, which when you know the population of North Korea, you know that's not a whole lot of Christians, uh, but still 300,000 people uh, that every single day risk their lives for their faith. Out of that 300,000 uh, Christians, we estimate that over 70,000 are in some kind of prison or detention center for their faith. So nearly one in three Christians uh, are being held captive somewhere because of their faith in that country. Uh, number, I think, nine on that list is Nigeria. Nigeria uh, is ninth on the all-time, but is actually ranked one, number one in regards to violent persecution. Uh, 95% of uh, Christian martyrs come out of Nigeria, um, mainly the, the, the north end. Um, and you would have even heard at the start of 2021, there were, there were, there were Christians that were being um, martyred for their faith. Um, India is another one uh, where they, the persecution is increasing. Uh, they're in the top 10. And the FFS, it's called, which is like the Hindu version of ISIS, actually released a statement. And this was uh, in 2019, I believe. And they released a statement to eradicate Christianity by December 2021. And this would leave three options to either be killed, to flee, or to convert back to Hinduism. For a Christian to convert back to Hinduism, they call it a homecoming ceremony. Uh, despite that, uh, Open Doors alone is serving and working with 1.2 million Christians uh, in India at the moment, and it is certainly not eradicated. I want to start by sharing a story with you guys, and then uh, I'll get into the scripture I want to share. But this story starts in uh, Egypt, and actually um, it was one morning, a Thursday morning, where a young Islamic extremist uh, woke up, and on that day had decided, obviously pre-planned, that it was that particular day that he was going to strap a bomb to his chest and head into a Christian compound in downtown Cairo and uh, take out a prominent Christian leader that he knew would be inside that compound. And as he entered the compound, little did he know how big these compounds actually are and how many buildings there are within these Christian compounds. I think nervous and stressed and not sure where he was going to locate or, or whatever this, this uh, leader, he kind of panicked and didn't know what to do and heard music coming from the distance. And as he looked over to where the music was coming, he could see that it was a church building. And in that moment, he decided to change his attack and head towards where he knew there were people and started mo moving towards this church uh, on a Thursday morning, which was actually where 150 women would meet every Thursday morning to pray and worship together. And as he began to walk towards uh, this church building, there was a security guard out the front of the church who noticed the man walking towards him and saw that something wasn't right, something didn't look right, and he was alerted and concerned 
by this man that was coming towards the church. He signaled to the man to stop where he was, to not come any closer, and the man just continued to walk closer. And in that moment, the security guard began to move towards the man. And as they got closer uh, in that moment, the bomb was detonated and the security guard, along with uh, the, the suicide bomber, were killed instantly. And the explosion uh, caused maybe a, a third or, or a quarter of the building uh, to actually collapse. And on that day where 150 women met, 27 women uh, were killed. And you can see the pictures here of some of the explosion marks and scaffolding. This is taken at a later date when our team were there. But if we go to the next slide, it's a close-up of actually the memorial board of the women that lost their life that day. And on that board, uh, there's a photo of two 12-year-old twin girls that uh, went to church that morning without their mum on their own um, to worship God and, and never uh, came home. And our team actually got to go to this church, and this is where they took uh, that photo. And... Um, it was a, a pretty sobering, obviously, experience, but at the same time, uh, a, a pretty uplifting and hopeful because if you look at the next photo, this was on a Thursday that our team were there and 150 women were still gathered to worship uh, and pray to their God despite what had previously happened. Uh, at the end of that service, one of the leaders said to our team, there's a woman that you need to meet. And they took our team, and you'll see on the next slide, uh, it was a woman named Maria. And uh, you can see in the photo that Maria is wearing all black, which is, a, a, I guess, a, a sign that she's in mourning. And so, uh, and then around her neck is a necklace. And if you can see, there's, there's a photo of a man on her necklace. And that man was the security guard that lost his life on that day. And so they, our team got to meet Maria and speak with her. And as she began to tell her story, she told them how after this had happened, she went to the church leaders and she had one request of them, one request that they would give to her and that request was that she would be able to do what her husband did. And on that day where our team came on a Thursday morning, Maria was the security guard that met, her, met them at the front of the church building. You know, Maria was one of the... Was, was, um, Maria, after that had happened, almost instantly, uh, our team were notified and Open Doors actually were able to provide her and her family with trauma counselling uh, and help her um, kind of deal with, you know, an unimaginable situation. Uh, and what a testament of the grace of God that she can, after all of that, not only still have a faith in Jesus Christ, but actually still step forward and say, hey, I'm going to continue to worship. I'm going to continue to serve. I'm going to continue um, to stand unashamed and boldly and courageously for my faith. And Maria is just one of many stories from the persecuted church. The scripture I want to read from this morning, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to is Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read it uh, first in the New International Version. And then I want to read this portion in the, the message paraphrase, which I, I feel uh, really just, just sums it up a lot. It says this in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This morning, I want to speak to us about perseverance. It says this in the message paraphrase, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blaze the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sin. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honour right alongside God. When you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he ploughed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. You know, if we flick uh, uh, to the chapter before, I feel like it's really important when we're reading uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we actually read about these generals, about these pioneers that blazed the way, about the faith that they have. And you would know the names of all of these people that it talks about in Hebrews chapter 11, your Moseses, your Jacobs, your ones that stood in faith, your Gideons, your Sarahs, those that lived uh, such a bold and courageous faith for God. And they're the ones that are cheering us on in our uh, perseverance as we run this race. But there's a really powerful part towards the end of chapter 11 uh, that I think really sums up the persecuted church and really speaks uh, into, into my soul especially, and hopefully yours too. If you go all the way towards the end, uh, in, verse, in, verse, uh, 20, in verse 31, it says, uh, by faith, and it's been talking about all of these amazing things that have happened throughout the Old Testament, men and women of faith. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Man, that sounds like a life of faith that I wanna live. I don't know about you, that administered justice, that conquered kingdoms, Quench, that shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, women who received back their dead alive. But it says this in verse, in verse uh, in, just before verse 36. It says, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. 
the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You know, I had read that chapter so many times, and I you know, had looked at these heroes of the faith that we read about in the Word. But I had never really dwelled on, I'd never really allowed the end of that passage to challenge me, to stir me up, to make me realise that there were others that we don't know about. There were others that will never know their name. There were others that don't have books written about them, but they were commended for their faith in the same way that the ones we read about were but they didn't receive what they were promised here in this life. There was something better, something greater. If there was ever a chapter to help you keep an eternal perspective, I feel it's this one because no matter what we go through or no matter what we face or what persecution may come, people may not remember our name, but we will be commended the same way when we go into glory. And I think about the persecuted church and I think about the stories that I hear, but the stories that I don't hear, the men and women that have given their lives for their faith that we don't know about, that we don't get to hear about, but they are the ones as well that look and cheer us on, that say to us, we can do it, you can persevere. They're not offended. They're not upset that they didn't get they didn't make it into this book, but they know they lived the way they were supposed to live and live for eternity with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so I quickly want to say three points out of chapter 12, at this first part of chapter 12, that I believe that if we can, uh, if we can establish in our life, it's going to help us persevere in our faith. It's going to help us run this race. It's going to help us not look back at the past, like Paul says in Ephesians, but look towards what is ahead. This is going to help us. And the first one is this, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Well, the message said to strip off, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And I know this one although seems so obvious that, yes, if we have sin in our lives, we need to repent of that, allow the forgiveness of God to wash over us and to continue to move on. But the sin that so easily entangles us, sometimes I think we get caught up not in the sin that so easily entangles or the sin that so easily distracts. We get caught up in the big things or sometimes even when we when we say things like, oh, we need to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us, we think about our family members or our friends that are struggling. Oh, if they just would lay it at the feet of God, if they would just repent, if they would just, you know, go to God with their addiction. But what about the little sin that so easily entangles? What about that offence? What about that bitterness? What about that unforgiveness? That even though we might not be struggling with addiction or we might not be going through some of those things that seem like a weightier, a bigger sin, but we have the little unforgiveness or offence that continues to eat away, that continues to distract, that continues to slow us, to stop us from running 
this race we're called to run, to persevere. And, you know, that's the one that really uh, came to my mind because we all know that sin is really missing the mark of Christ and we can all identify it in our, in our own lives, especially the sin that everyone else can see, but sometimes it's the sin that only we can identify in ourselves. And I know for me, when I was reading this, I got stuck on this idea of offence and unforgiveness because I believe it is one that comes into the church and it comes in to, to Christians uh, uh, and, and it, it lies dormant. And, and from the outside, people may not see it, but it, it begins to entangle us. It begins to weigh us down. It begins to become a burden that gets heavier and heavier that we were never supposed to carry. And I believe that Jesus says if we would just lay it at his feet. You know, I grew up in church. My, my parents were pastors. Um, they still are pastors. And and, you know, when you grow up in church, you, you realize that offense is something that you cannot avoid. At one point or another, if you're a part of a church community made up of people who are broken, people who have fallen short of the glory of God, you are going to be offended, whether it's by the, the pastor or whether it's by the greeter or whether it's by just someone that is in the building. Offense is going to happen and there's no excuse for it. There's no justification for it, but it exists and it will confront every single one of us, but it's what we do with it that really determines our focus and, and where we're headed and how we can continue to pursue what God has called us to. You know, you may have heard it before, but they say offence and unforgiveness is like drinking poison but expecting the other person to die. Yeah, we're so upset, we're so angry with that person, what they said to me, what they did to me, what had happened, how they handled that situation, and we just, we just can't move on, we can't move past it, but maybe they don't even know about it, and they're living their life, they're loving their life, they're enjoying everything that is to be enjoyed, yet you are suffering. Would we be able to just lay it humbly before God and say, I give it over to you. Like it says in Hebrews, would you go over what he has done, maybe what he has forgiven you from, and that way we can release this burden. You know, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, it says that his burden is light, his yoke is easy. Would we throw off the sin that so easily entangles? Would we give it to God? Would we come before counsel, whoever we need to talk to, and say, I need to lay this down at the feet of God so that I can run this race. The second point that it goes on to say is to fix your eyes on Jesus and start running. The message said, strip off, start running, and never quit. Start running, fix your eyes on Jesus. And it reminds me of a story of a man named Din Van Sen. And a photo of him is going to come up on the screen He's the man in the middle. Hey, he's my age, and he lives in the central highlands of Vietnam. Uh, it's called the Hmong people. And where he lives, there is no, uh, there's no written language or no written translation of his language. So you can't get a Bible like this 
in their language to those people because they have no written dialect. And it says, someone said it's like it takes over 10 years to take a, a people's language and turn it into written form. And so in order to get the gospel to the Hmong people in the central highlands of Vietnam, people have recorded the gospels in their language, put them on these solar panel MP3 players and got them into these small villages so people like Vin Dan Sam can put these on and as he's working the farm, as he's working the fields, he can listen and hear the gospel and that is how he got saved. He was saved, transformed and began to do what we read about in the Bible when anyone encountered Jesus, you begin to tell other people about your encounters. So a village of 100 people, he begins to tell people about what he's heard, about what he's listened to, about this Jesus that saves, that forgives, that heals. And as he begins to tell people, families begin to get saved. Within a short time, there are four other families that have converted, that have given their lives to Jesus amongst a community of 100 people. So you can see that revival is starting to break out among this small village. So much so that the villagers catch wind of it. And before long, the government catches wind of it. And what happens is the government doesn't like to be known as uh, persecutors of other religions or of Christians. So what they did is they went into this village. They, bring, they roll up with a little PA system. They get the entire village into a hall. Uh, and then they put a projector screen. They run clips and photos of malnourished children. And they get Vindan San on stage and they say, if you believe what he's saying and if you follow the God that he's talking about, this is what will happen to your kids. Your crops will not yield. You will not have food. Your kids will starve and they will die. That is what is going to happen to you if you listen to this man. They don't just do it for that one day. They do it seven days in a row. They make sure it's abundantly clear to the hundred villagers that if you listen to what comes out of this man's mouth, this is what's going to happen to you and your family. And then they pack up their PA system and they leave the village to do their worst to a 31-year-old Dim Van San. He then starts to suffer all kinds of persecution He uh, has one large pig on his farm that was worth a lot of money. They slaughtered the pig in front of him and took it away. He had a little milling business out the back of his farm and they chopped down those trees and took them away, destroyed them. It got so severe uh, that they would roll rocks over the ravine and onto onto his house and they would fall through the building almost Uh, killing him and his family. He had a young baby at the time and uh, someone tried to take the baby and he managed to wrestle the baby back and then flee into the bush and away from the village. It was then that our, our, our people on the ground in Ho Chi Minh heard about Vindam Sam and what he was going through and the persecution he was facing. And they actually went to him and they, 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 they took him and his family out of the village and were able to just... Uh, recoup them, rehabilitate them, but also 
which is very rare for it to happen, they, they actually offered to move him. They said, you need to leave your village for a time. It is too dangerous for you to be there. You're probably going to be killed. His response was, if I go, then who will tell them about Jesus? You know, our team actually got to visit, and that's when they took this photo. They listened to him tell his story for three hours, and he wept as he told his story. And our team were all crying, as you would imagine, hearing this man talk about what he had been through. And as our team's there, just speechless and not knowing what to say, what questions to ask, how do you talk to it, how do you even listen to this, never alone, you know, have a conversation. And in hindsight, probably a very uh, ignorant and silly question, but I think in the moment, everyone wanting to ask the same sort of question, someone from the team mustered up the courage and looked him in the eyes and said, why do you follow Jesus? Like, like why? Like everything that's going on, like your family being so close to being killed, like the amount of persecution from a small village. Think about living in a village of 100 people. Everyone would know everyone. Everyone, it would be like family in a sense. And these people that you would have called friends, that you would have called family are now treating you and persecuting you. Why do you follow Jesus? You just heard it in your ears. You just listened to a tape and now you're risking your entire life on something that you have heard. Why do you follow Jesus? And he looked back at them with tears in his eyes and he said, because I know him. Because I know him. What a response. What a response that just kind of levels everything and puts everything into perspective and then makes you ask the question of yourself, do you know him? Because for him to go through everything he's gone through and say the very reason is because he knows Jesus. Now think about that scripture, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. I don't know if you've seen, if you, if you remember watching your kids run, I used to do little athletics when I was a kid and I remember the coach would always say when you run to look ahead don't look at the person to your left or to your right. Have you ever watched your kids run in a school running race? They spend all their time going like this, making sure they know where everyone is. But we know you're going to run faster. You're going to get to your destination. You're going to make it there quicker. You're going you're to not run out of your lane when you fix your eyes. But what do we do in life? We're so easily distracted. It's so easy to take our eyes off the things of God. I love Colossians 3, the start of it says, set in one version, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Fix your eyes on that eternal perspective on God himself rather than being distracted about what's going on. And I feel like it's not even bad things that distract us. I have four kids and twins it's really easy to take my eyes off Jesus and what he's called me to do and just be looking here and looking here. And I know first and foremost, I am called to my family. And so I don't see them to the left and to the right, but sometimes I get distracted in the busyness, in the craziness of life and take my eyes off Jesus. But if we, take, if we fix our eyes on him, we will know him. We will study, if we study him, that is how we will know him. That is how we'll be able to continue to persevere and run this race. And the third thing 
final thing is this, never quit. I feel like it sounds so simple, but how important is that? Because I know in my life, my only 31 years of my life, the amount of people younger and older that I have seen give up. Give up. They know God. They've encountered Jesus. They've had a relationship with Him. But for whatever reason, circumstances happened, life happened, difficulty came, and they take their eyes off Jesus, and then they, they, they give up. But we have this amazing revelation, this truth, that if we don't give up, we win. Because we already know that the victory has been won. We already know that Jesus went to the cross and died and three days later rose again, defeated death for all time, that the enemy has been defeated. We all know the song that is sung. And if we just don't give up, we win. We will live with God for eternity. But so many people in this day and age are giving up on their faith, on their relationship with Jesus. You know, so much of what Open Doors does is strengthen the persecuted church so that they don't give up. Because if anyone could give up and say, it's just not worth it, it's too much of a risk, it'd be so much easier if I just converted back to Hinduism or Islam, I would get all the benefits we need, I would get the healthcare that we need, we'd get these different things. But they stand firm, not giving up, knowing that there is a greater reward waiting for us, that eternity is so much more important. And if we have that eternal perspective, not to give up. I'm going to ask the, the team to come, and I just want to tell one last story of a boy named Solomon. And his photo is going to come up on the screen. A young boy that, uh, that fled Iraq to Jordan, and our team took this photo when they were in Jordan. He witnessed his village get burned down and his parents martyred in front of his eyes, and he was taken out of Iraq and made it to Jordan where our team picked him up, or they, 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 and they took him in to, to one, of these, um, one of these developments or safe houses, if you'd like, that we would have for people like Solomon and Within there, we, we, we do things like art therapy for kids that have, that have faced severe trauma in their life, unimaginable trauma. And that was here where our team was visiting Solomon when he was doing his art therapy. And it's crazy because I could never imagine going through what he went through, and he wouldn't talk, right? And it's understandable, and that's why they do the art therapy, because sometimes what they want to say, they can't. But when you give them a paintbrush and some paints and a, an array of colours and a blank canvas and say, just paint whatever is going on, just paint whatever's happening for you, just, just whatever it is, just paint it. The first photo you're going to see is the first painting that, he, he painted when he came into the village. I don't know about you, my kids love to paint. But when my kids paint, I feel like it's rainbows. I feel like it's bright colours. I feel like it's trees or it's clouds or it's rainbows or whatever it may be. And when I saw this, it, 
I was like, what young kid paints that? But then when you know about Solomon's story and you know what he's been through, that there is a true depiction, reflection of what that young boy has had to go through. Is it his village on fire? I don't know. But when I see that picture, it doesn't bring joy or hope to my heart. And I'm not trying to make people feel bad or guilty because I believe that there is hope in every single situation. I know there is hope in every single situation. And I know that some of our lives and some of our situations and circumstances, if we were given a blank canvas and a set of paintbrushes and we're told to paint how we feel right now, it may not look exactly like that, but it may not look like the painting that you would want it to look like. But I can tell you after months and months of rehabilitation and teams and trauma counsellors working with Solomon, our, our team saw that photo, one of his first when he came, but they also saw one of his most recent ones, which looked like this. And to me, that says hope. There's a house, there's a tree, there's blue skies, there's birds in the air, there's a sun. And your situation may not look like that right now, but I'm telling you there is hope for you. Whatever storm you are going through, just know that at the right time, at His time, He will stand up in your storm and He will calm the wind and the waves. But just don't give up because too many people right now are giving up on faith. I love coming into churches and seeing people that are older than me. It's majority of the people here today. You sit here and I look out and I'm inspired that people haven't given up because you all have stories and you all have things that probably would somewhat, some way justify the ability to give up, to quit, to say it's too hard, it's too much. Tragedies that have happened, lost loved ones, had bad diagnosis, been hurt, mistreated, abused, whatever it may be, but you're still here saying that our God is good, that He is faithful to the very end, and I will stand on that. If we don't quit, we win. We want to persevere. We want to go after the things of God. We need to strip off the sin that so easily entangles us. We need to start running, fix our eyes on Jesus, and never quit, never give up. You know, I want to pray for everyone and then uh, I just want to talk about one last thing before I hand back over to Scott. Would you just bow your heads with me? God, I just thank you for every single person in this room. God, I thank you that you know what they're going through. You know what life is like. You know the ups, the downs. You know it all. You're in it all. God, I just pray that as people go over the story of what you did, item by item, that long litany of hostility, that they would know what you have done and that would shoot adrenaline into their souls. That would revive maybe a spirit that is down. God, I pray for anyone here that maybe is on the verge of just throwing the towel in, just giving up, just saying, I can't do this anymore. 
or maybe you know someone that's not sitting next to you right now that was six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, but no longer are because for whatever reason they have just given God, would we just fix our eyes upon you? We don't need anything else in this life but you. Let us think of eternal things, not caught up in this earthly madness and things that don't matter. Well, they won't matter. We'd trust you and we'd love you. God, I thank you for every single person in here that you've destined them. You've got a plan for them, a purpose for them. Pray against depression and anxiety or anything that would try to distract them. We love you, Jesus. We give you all the glory and all the honour. In your name we pray. Amen.